Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you have done in us, all that you are doing through us, and we know stuff that we don't even know about that you are doing for us. Guarding us, protecting us, helping us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us again this morning. Make us attentive to your word. Teach us and train us in all righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would give me strength, not of myself, but of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help me to speak words of wisdom, not of worldly wisdom, but of heavenly wisdom, eternal truths that, that, that go back to the foundations, before the foundations of the world, have their location in your eternal counsel. We pray, Father, that these, these things would be respected, that they would be heard, not as the words of, of a man, but as the words of you, our Lord and Creator and Sovereign over all. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to Jesus, that we would not only learn to fear you as those who, who um, stand before you in awe and in holy reverence, but that we would be those who have faith in you, knowing that you have come to be with us in Christ, to bring us to God, that we might be justified by faith. So give us faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in your Bibles this morning, the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah and the ninth chapter. Zechariah chapter 9. And in just a moment, I'm going to read the entirety of this chapter. Please be focused. Listen to the words and read them intensely. I know it's 17 verses, but uh, these, these are words of great importance. Words that speak to us with convicting power on the one hand and with sustaining hope on the other. We do well to heed them. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, and will strike her down, her power on the sea. And she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. And His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness, and how great is His beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You ain't all that. That's what R&B singer Shanice sings to reject the lure of a smooth-talking hustler in her 1991 song of the same name. The man wears green suede and he drives a Maserati. He walks with a strut. And Shanice sings, You think you're so bad, hustling girls that want your money. Well, you ain't worth a dime you have, baby. (laughs) She tells him to get lost, tells him he's not legit, and reminds him repeatedly, you ain't all that. I'm going to level with you. I spend a lot of time encouraging people. I hope you know that. I hope that you are recipient of that in some way. I spend a lot of time elevating people, affirming people. How many times have I told you from this pulpit that you are made in the image of God? that you are beautiful, that you have intrinsic value, worth, and dignity. I said it last Thursday at our prayer meeting. You have dignity that is given to you by God. It is created dignity. It is intrinsic to who you are. No one can take that away from you. All of that is true. But although we have dignity and worth and value, that has not prevented us from behaving and believing in undignified ways. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans, we have all become worthless. How can those who have worth, value, dignity, intrinsic to their nature become worthless? We think, we speak, we act in undignified ways, in worthless ways. Yes, uh, there are some of us who may do so because we we think so little of ourselves. I, I, I know, I've met people who the reason they behave as they do is because they they have never heard that they have dignity. They have never been told that they have value or worth. There are people like that. 
But none of you can say that. Because if you've not heard it from anyone else, and if you've not heard it anywhere else, you have heard it from me, and you have heard it here. For the majority, I fear our sins, consciously or unconsciously, individually and collectively, are driven by a sense of entitlement. Of we are worthy of more. God's created us with value and worth, but that's not enough. The dignity that God has endowed upon all of us as our benevolent Creator is not enough. And so we reach for more. And to reach for more, we have to go outside the boundaries that God has set for us from the very beginning. Did God really say, you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. He, he said we, we could not eat of that tree and we couldn't touch it either. Surely, why? We'll die. He said in the day we eat of it, we'll die. You shall not die. You will be like God. And we've been listening to that serpent's voice ever since. Choosing things that make us feel like God in the moment and devastate us and kill us afterwards. You ain't all that. God has to tell us in a manner of speaking, you think you're something, but you're not. You may be very wise, but you ain't all that. That's part of the message of the first eight verses of this chapter. You may be very wise, but you ain't all that. The verses before us list many cities, perhaps unfamiliar to you. Uh, they, they are to the north and the west of Israel. They are in modern Syria and Lebanon. It takes one of these cities and uses that city kind of as an example, elevates that city as an example somewhat, a representative of all of these cities. That city is the city of Tyre. Tyre was an island city. It was cut off from the mainland of what is now Lebanon. Verse 2 pairs it with Sidon. Often Tyre is paired with Sidon. And it says that although these cities were very wise. God is watching them. It develops the theme of Tyre's wisdom specifically. Notice, though they are very wise, verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart. They had built a, a rampart, that is a wall of defense built to protect the city. It was a smart move. After all, as I've said, they were isolated from the mainland. And as an island city, they were vulnerable. As a wealthy city, they were not only vulnerable, they were attractive. An island city is vulnerable, but an island fortress, that, that's a little harder to, to deal with. A city that has built its walls in such a way that you cannot get a foothold on any beach because there is no beach. The walls go right up to the sea and indeed are built on rocks that go deep down into the sea. That's what Tyre was. They were wise. It was a smart move. History tells us that these walls were reportedly 150 feet tall. That is 45 meters high. And you know to support a wall of 150 feet or of 40 meter, 45 meters, you're going to have a wall of comparable width and thickness. Tall walls, thick walls, Walls that go right up to and down into the sea. Tyre thought that they could not be taken. Mighty empires had tried. 
The Babylonians, for example, under Nebuchadnezzar, they had tried and they had failed. Indeed, the Babylonians besieged the city, get this, for 13 years. And they eventually decided it was time to move on. Where were you 13 years ago? Some of you were in primary school. A lot happens in 13 years. 13 years ago, George W. Bush was still president in the USA and Gordon Brown was prime minister of the United Kingdom. You might not have been paying attention, some of you, at that point. Who was that? Okay, I'm not. <laughs> you, you, you probably know, but that's a long time. 13 years. That puts it in perspective. 13 years, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army surrounded the city of Tyre such as they could, it being a uh, sea fortress. One thing didn't happen Tyre did not fall. They were wise, they knew better. They could look after themselves. Years before Zechariah, Ezekiel had commented similarly on their self-estimation. Uh, maybe turn to Ezekiel chapter 28 and uh, look at verses 1 through 2. Ezekiel 28 verses 1 through 2 says of this same city, but years before Zechariah prophesied, your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. They thought that their position, their place, that they had strategically chosen and, and fortified, said something about their wisdom, yes, but their wisdom said something about their nature, their character. They are not just people, they are gods. And God, through Ezekiel, said, Yet you are but a man. And no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. But they ain't all that. Ezekiel asked a blunt question in verse 9 of his prophecy. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you. Where is their godlike knowledge and wisdom then? If all their wisdom has accomplished is a culture of violence, militarism, and fortified untouchability, what happens when they are disarmed, when they are thrown down, when they are roughed up, when they are put down in the street, forced to their knees, or lying on their backs, bleeding out and facing eternity. How do they feel then? How God-like are they in that moment? And what about you? Is there any way, is there any sense in which you are strutting through life thinking you're all that, that you are perhaps too cool for school, that you're too smart for the discipline and admonition of the Lord, that you are too proud for fellowship and meaningful community with God's people, that you are too good for the messy situations in life, that you are too safe and secure than to fall into sin or to fall to sickness or to fall to need or any number of other things that can assault us at any time completely unpredictably because we don't know what a day may bring. You know too much to possibly fall. You know too much to possibly be wrong or to possibly do wrong. You have found security in what you know. You have found security in your wisdom. Hold that thought. They were very wise. You may be very wise. They were very wealthy. So if if we're thinking you may be very you, you you may be very wise, but you ain't all that. 
you may be very wealthy. Oh, yeah. Come on, guys, wake up. But you ain't all that. You aren't. It doesn't matter what you have. Unless some of you are holding out on me, I, I, I don't know. I don't think any of us have faced this particular affliction. If you are, or if someone's watching this morning and you are afflicted with great wealth, you can talk to me afterwards. There are some excellent projects that I could assist you in stewarding your resources towards. And after I'm done, there's a queue of other people in the church as well who want to have a word for fellowship. <laughs> Here's the thing. One, you are a lot wealthier sat here in the global city of London than the vast majority of people in the world. And you know it because you may have family members and friends who think, you are wealthy. Am I right? You know that. Even if you don't always feel that. So this applies to you. And if you question me on that, just know that if you are chasing the riches of the world, if you think that more money, a house of your own, a car, a different neighborhood, a life of comfort and material prosperity will be the point at which you have arrived, you are wrong. Aside from those things ultimately failing to solve your problems in the way that you think they will, or satisfy your pleasure in the way you hope they will. You could be the richest man on earth and the Word of God would still communicate to you. Even if you had no problems, even if you were very satisfied, the Word of God would still communicate to you, you ain't all that. Tyre, as the representative of this list of cities, was extremely rich. Read verse 3. Tyre has built herself a rampart. That's their military security. But Tyre has heaped up silver like dust. That's their financial security. Fine gold like the mud of the streets. They were so prosperous. He compares their gold and their silver to dust particles and mud. Refuse. Tyre's wisdom led to their wealth. Ezekiel 28, again, is a very helpful gloss for this, this passage and understanding it more deeply. In verse 5 of Ezekiel 28, we read, By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. So he does not deny that they were wise. He does not deny that they were wealthy. He is not speaking sarcastically when he says they are very wise or they are very wealthy. They are legitimately both things. But they have nothing because they lack what matters. The wisdom they had was not from above because it was neither peaceable nor was it pure. They were violent they were oppressive. They were enslaving. Their trade is called, successful though it is, prosperous though it is, their trade is called unrighteous by Ezekiel. And their enslaving practices were a breach of the covenant of brotherhood condemned by the prophet Amos. Their financial security was created by violence and human trafficking. Their king is described by Ezekiel in Luciferian, satanic terms. Dissatisfied with how God made him, he reached for what was outside proper boundaries and limits. He had it all, and it wasn't enough. 
thinking himself to be God. He, he, he was, in fact, more of a demon. And what about you? What do you have that you are holding on to so tightly that it's an idol? What are you trusting in, either as something you have or something you want to have, something you are chasing this morning, something you are desiring this morning? And it's not enough. It will never be enough. You're finding your security in your wisdom. You're finding your security in your wealth. What you have or what you will have, brothers and sisters, your hope, your trust is misplaced. I'm so glad our brother Iskander is here today. Of all days, you chose the best time because I remember your testimony in front of the church when you were baptized. And I remember many times sat with you in the Charlie's on Woodgreen High Road. And I remember when your family was living upstairs last year. And the number of times you told me I had everything, but I had nothing. I now have nothing, but I have everything. And when you told me that, I was, I was like, this is a man who gets it. as the poem our brother Ian showed me this morning and gave me to read. To be low is to be high. Sometimes we have to learn the hard way, whether you were filthy rich, as our brother Eskander was back in the day um, um, uh, in Dubai, working with uh, you know, multiple very successful businesses and prospering. But his heart was far from God. Or whether you feel you have nothing this morning, my friends, your hope, your satisfaction, your trust can only be located in God. Your wisdom from above, your wealth in the riches of Christ, everything else will let you down. Everything else will bring you down. Very wise, very wealthy, but they ain't all that. My question is, though, who is all of that? Who is everything that they say they are? Who has everything that they say they have? Who brings everything that they say they will bring? Who does everything that they say they will do? The centerpiece of this text is not Tyre. The centerpiece of this text is not the cities that Tyre is representing. The centerpiece of this, 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 this text is not, you ain't all that. The centerpiece of this text is not exposing how unimpressive, how inadequate, and how disappointing you are. Rather, exposing those things is simply in service to divert you from misplaced trust to see Him who really is all of that. It starts with those, those few verses talking about these cities that are eaten up by, by their, 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 their wickedness. Their self-estimation of their, their, their wisdom and their wealth falls far short of what is necessary. But we are pointed to who? To the Lord God. He is described in this chapter first as watchful. Especially those first eight verses emphasize this. Bookending that section, we are told that he has, verse 1, the conclusion of verse 1, the Lord has an eye on mankind. And, and uh, this is, Hebrew is not always easy to translate, and so some translations render that slightly differently. I'm convinced that this is the correct translation because it, it, it acts as an emphasis. He repeats it later toward the end of the passage. Verse 8. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my eyes. God is watching. He sees 
everything. He has an eye on mankind and on the tribes of Israel. You can guarantee he has an eye on you too. When you've forgotten that is when you've messed up. At the end of verse 8, he says, Now I see with my eyes. You can be assured that God has always seen with his eyes. The immediate context of that verse is oppression. He sees those who are oppressors, and he sees those who are oppressed. Contrary what some would imply, those are thoroughly biblical categories. He knows those who are enemies, and he knows those whom he has befriended. He is completely aware of what you are going through and of what you have been through, but he's also aware of what you are putting others through. He sees you as you really are. Not how you project yourself to be. God sees beyond Facebook. He sees beyond Twitter and YouTube. He sees beyond your Instagram. You can say hashtag no filter all you like, but God knows exactly what mask you're putting on. And he sees it all. Better than you see it. Clearer than you see it. With all of your sins. All of your problems. All of your history. All of your present. All of your future. God saw Tyre. He saw these other cities. He saw that they were very wise. He saw that they were very wealthy. But he also saw what they did not see or could not see because they were so blinded by pride or what they would not see because they were so fixated by greed. He saw that not only were they very wise and not only were they very wealthy, he saw that they were very wicked. Verse 7 describes the visual as God sees it. It's a grotesque scene. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. I don't know, there's something really gross about seeing food particles in, in, in between teeth, whether it's human or animal. It's just not, not a pleasant sight. You don't focus on that. But God sees, sees sinners as like wild animals, their teeth stained with blood and their, their, their tongue rolling in it, and, 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 and fleshy bits and chunks stuck in their teeth and, and, and falling out of their mouths. And, and he sees that when we think we're eating quite daintily. This, this meal that we have won with our wisdom and have purchased with our wealth. We're like some sort of wild dog or hyena or something, just tearing away at a rotted carcass. That's what God sees. He sees also exactly what it's going to take to sort you out. And maybe he's already doing that. And unless you get serious about deep repentance and change, or preempt it with confession, everyone will see it. Because that's what happened to Tyre. And it wasn't pretty. Verses 4 through 5. Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. She shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. God is watchful. And to be seen by God is not first a particularly encouraging thing unless you can say with confidence you are defined by something more than your wisdom and your wealth. To say God is watching may be very bad news for you. But there is good news. The text does not simply leave us with the vision of a God who is watchful. 
but it tells us about a God who is wonderful. God is wonderful. Because God is wonderful, the passage does not leave us with a simple statement of the grim facts about humanity, but it points us to hope. Shanice might, have, might not have rejected the smooth talk of the hustler in that song if she didn't have some sense that there was someone better out there for her. I don't know, but there might be some hustler hustling you today. Some sort of lure of tire appealing to you with worldly wisdom, with promises of worldly riches. And you need to know how to say you ain't all that. Or maybe you are tired. Maybe you are the one to whom God is saying, you ain't all that. The cities before us were trusting in themselves, not in the Creator who made them. They had armies, but didn't know the Lord of armies. They had gold, but they didn't have God. They had silver, but they didn't have a Savior. They had military security, and they had financial security, but they didn't have eternal security. They had saved up, but they were not saved up. Their walls couldn't build a relationship with God. Their money couldn't bribe God to look away. They weren't all that. But God is everything, His people, and anyone suffering under this sort of stuff could ever need. He is bad news for some, but He is good news for others. Justice will come. Peace will be established. And those who now sit in prison, in the bondage of their, 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 just their pain, knowing these things are wrong, knowing these things don't satisfy, but feeling the pull of those things and being mocked and oppressed because they resist those things, they will be set free. And free to eternal joy, to eternal satisfaction, to the goodness and glory of God forevermore. A couple hundred years after the prophecy that we've read this morning, a young, blonde-haired Macedonian, 23 years old. If you are already self-loathing because of something I've said this morning, this will, might push you over the edge. His name was Alexander, 23 years old, and he besieges Tyre. And in seven months, he did what the substantially older and wiser and better equipped um, imperial king Nebuchadnezzar could not do in 13 years. Seven months. And these other cities here in this passage study up on Alexander's campaign through the Middle East. This is basically a list of the cities that fell. If ever anyone, I'm going to be talking about the trustworthiness of Scripture tonight. Um, if anyone ever wonders, just, just look at the prophecies and look at how they have been fulfilled. One city not on the list in this passage, one city not on the list of Alexander's Middle Eastern conquests at the age of 23. Again, I keep emphasizing that's incredible. Jerusalem. Alexander went to Jerusalem. He was met outside by the priests, the high priest, and the people. He rode up to them, and he saluted the high priest as though he had known him for some time. The soldiers surrounding him thought he had lost his mind. They didn't know what he was on about. He explained that he had seen this man in a dream and that this guy had summoned him to the Middle East. Weird stuff. That he had led him 
to go on this campaign to conquer the surrounding nations. He got off the horse. He walked into the city. They led him to the temple. And there he offered, though not a Jew and not a godly man, he offered sacrifices to Yahweh. He was shown prophecies about the Greeks conquering the Persians from the book of Daniel. The, the, the priest said they believed these were about him. He agreed. He left. And he gave them promises of protection and assurances of their religious liberty and their identity wherever they were throughout his growing empire including the conquered Persian lands, they would have complete freedom to be who they were as the Jewish people. Now, God was undoubtedly working in that to fulfill the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Read the story, read this prophecy, and tell me you don't see that. But there is a better king. There, there is a more wonderful savior. We're told a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. Verse 6. Literally a bastard. An illegitimate child. Who is it who gives an inheritance to the bastard? It says that out of these places there shall be a remnant for our God. Out of these places, out of this list of pagan, wicked cities that trusted in their wisdom and trusted in their wealth and totally misplaced that trust, that thought they were something when they were nothing, who is it that takes out of such irredeemable places, out of their ruins, a remnant? who makes them part of the family of God, who makes them like a clan of Judah, who makes them like the, inhabit the Jebusites, that is, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who is this who brings a remnant out of the ruined? Who is it who says he will encamp at his house like a guard? And no oppressor will march over his people fully and finally again. Who is it who guards the oppressed? This king would one day approach Jerusalem and the people would go out to meet him. But he didn't ride a horse and he didn't come with an army and he wasn't king of an earthly empire. Jesus, a carpenter of Nazareth, accompanied by a motley crew of fishermen, former Jewish revolutionaries and a tax collector, rode in on a donkey and its colt. He would not, like Alexander, make sacrifice in the temple, nor even in the city. But he would be betrayed and cast out of the city and become a sacrifice himself, crucified on a cross for sinners. To Zechariah's audience, he was coming. And so Zechariah says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly! O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice, shout. There should be praise. There should be gladness. That was to people who were expecting Him. Can't we rejoice and shout, not as those looking forward to Him, but looking back to Him and seeing the promises of God fulfilled? Because of Christ, the bastard has an inheritance. Because of Christ, there is redemption out of the ruins of a remnant. Because of Christ, the oppressed have a hope. Because He has made His home with them. Because of Christ, the nations are brought into God's family. So we can all say, today, honestly, we can hold up our hands and say, I ain't all that. 
but He is. And we can resist the lure of the world and the flesh and the devil's hustle and say, you ain't all that, but He is. And the best is yet to come. The donkey riding, humble, peaceful Savior King has all power to fight the power breaking militarism and financial corruption and oppression with the message of His kingdom of peace. That is what this, the rest of this chapter is all about. He brings peace for a world at war. He reigns as a righteous king even now all over the world from the river that is from Euphrates, the river by which the river of Babylon by which they sat and wept and hung up their stringed instruments because they couldn't play anymore because they didn't have it in them. But from that river to the ends of the earth, He will reign. Nothing will be without His, his dominion. Nothing will be out of His sovereignty or supremacy or power. Wherever people follow Him, He is using them to combat the evil around. Sons of Zion are still equipped with the sword of the Holy Spirit to fight against the Greeks, to fight against those who are outside the family of God. He's a righteous king who brings peace. Not war. Even his war is peace. Verse, verse 10 I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. He takes these things in his hand and he breaks them. And he says, peace. And with him there is peace. Tyranny falls because he's a righteous saving king for those who are downtrodden by tyranny, those who are exploited by corruption, those who are forgotten by the negligent, those who are devastated by the incompetent. Verse 11, because of the blood of the covenant, prisoners go free. That is, a penalty is paid. The debt is satisfied. There's a song we sometimes sing says, the innocent is cursed. The guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. Jesus pays the price on the cross, shedding His blood for us, the blood of a new covenant, so that whoever you are and wherever you're from and whatever you've done and whatever you've believed in the past, you can have salvation. The chains can be broken and you can walk in good relationship of freedom with God in Christ. We're brought from the prison to the palace. Those who were taken away are returned. Reparations are made such that those robbed, we are told, receive back double. If verse 9 tells us about His first coming to His people and the blessings Jesus Christ has brought and is bringing through the gospel, verses 14 through 17 tell us even more about His second coming. This time, he's not riding a donkey for peace, but he's riding a horse for war. This, even in this passage, it doesn't even talk about the horse so much as something a little more impressive. He's riding the clouds. He's above them like lightning. This is the return of the king. Having come once, he's back again for one last battle. The end of the story has already been written. If you feel embattled today, if you feel beleaguered today, if you feel that Tyre is tyrannizing you, He's coming. He's coming. Wait for Him. Pray to Him. Come, Lord Jesus. Read it, verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God 
will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty, grain shall make the young men flourish, new wine the young women. How great, how great, not is my goodness, not is your goodness, how great is your goodness, O Lord. How great, not is my beauty, nor your beauty, but your beauty, O Lord. Rejoice, sing for joy. What was I saying? God is wonderful. He's wonderful. And the wonderfulness of God puts all the wisdom and all of the wealth of this world into the gutter. You may be very wise, but you ain't all that. You may be very wealthy, but you ain't all that. God is watchful and He sees you as you are. God is wonderful and He saves you as you are, from where you are, if you trust in Him. Because He is all that. And because He is, we find our identity, our worth, our satisfaction in Him we are, the text says, the flock of His people. We are the remnant that He has redeemed. We will shine in the land like the jewels of His people. In other words, you have created value, dignity, and worth. Because you're a wicked sinner, you ain't all that. But because we have a wonderful Savior... You have dignity, value, and worth. Shine like jewels in the world. Amen.